only get a hundred rand for my constant attendant. Um, um, and the National Minimum Wage Act now prescribes that there are certain um, minimum hourly rates that I need to come that I need to comply with. It's mandatory. I need to comply with it. That money must come from somewhere. That means the beneficiary that I now have to take from my quota compensation or pension, I have to take additional money um, to make up the shortfall, to comply with it, to comply with the National Minimum, Minimum, Minimum Wage Act so that I can pay my um, constant attendant in accordance, with the, in accordance with the law. So at the time when you as a disabled person, um, you got additional expenses, um, you now have to deal with making sure that you um, pay your, your constant attendant um, as well and make sure that you pay him, him or her in accordance, with the, in accordance with the law. So our proposal is that where, where we have... But are they, are the caregivers not... Pardon? I think someone is asking a, a, a question. Oh, no, you okay. continue. All right, thank you. Th thank you, Madam Chair. Um, so we're saying that for those, for those um, constant attendants or slash care, care givers, the, the um, constant attendant allowance that's paid under the um, Quaida Act must be increased to be in line with the National Minimum Wage Act as well, so that um, Quaida beneficiaries don't have to make up that that shortfall. And then the second point that I want to make is that some Quaida beneficiaries require 24-hour um, care. So it can't be one person, it might be two people, it might be three people, and sometimes it might even be before. So I'm saying that the um, com commissioner must be mindful of that and a practical mechanism must maybe be created to deal with that instances where someone from the, from the department can go out and assess how many people this particular um, severely disabled quadriplegic um, requires and then the, then the constant attendance allowance must be determined um, um, must be developed in terms of in terms of in terms of that. I think um, I'll just go on to the la last slide and then I'll take some questions. I suppose. Um, so so the points are five points. The department must consult widely determining the tariff of fees and include ge generic terms for the assistive the devices. Um, the claims of permanently disabled beneficiaries must remain open, I think, or some other mechanism so that you can access emergency um, hospitalization or healthcare when, whenever it's needed and not necessarily have to wait um, until someone comes to work or, at the, you know, or 20, 40 to 24 hours later, um, which could have serious implications and, possible, and, even, and even death. That the three-year prescription period is fine, but um, employees must be allowed to report to the employer or the com or the commissioner 
and the commissioner must have a discretion to consider claims after the three-year period on, on good cause shown. Um, the monthly pensions that are paid to quota beneficiaries must be must be at least as, as a minimum in line with the National Minimum Wage Act for the specific sectors. And then that the lastly the allowance paid to constant tenders must be revised and brought in line um, with the National Minimum Wage Act. And that the commissioner must take note that certain um, permanent disabled beneficiaries may require 24 hour attendant care. And, and then that care would obviously be given by different um, attendants. Um, Madam Chair, that's quasi sub submissions. Um, I'll obviously take some questions just to clarify if, if it's unclear what we were saying. Thank you. I thank you very much, Mr. Uh, Mr. Daniels. Thank you, thank you very much. Uh, I don't know how to, now I will, I will invite uh, questions. Now, I'm always, uh, you know, technology, because I want you to, to take off your presentation from the screen so that I'm able to see. Sure, madam. Members want to. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Honorable members, there is the presentation. Are there any questions? I see one hand. Any other person want to ask? For now, it's Honorable Dana. Thank you, Chair. Um, I just have one question for Mr. Daniels. Um, as a prominent organization who I can imagine have many members, unfortunately, as a result of injuries at work, have you been contacted um, or been a part of the socioeconomic impact assessment that the department has done as part of this amendment bill, um, I think it was in 2015, or in any follow-up assessment since then. Thank you, Chair. Uh, Thank you. No, no, Mr. Daniels, what we will do, we will, I'll just try and check if there are any more questions. Then after that, you will then ask, uh, you then respond to all of them. My, 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 whilst I'm still waiting for other hands, my, my question will be from you, is it when you said public hospitals are not aware of changing paraplegics every after two hours? Is it, is it, are you sure that they are not aware or they, instead of doing it every after two hours, they will do it after, make an example, after three hours, which is a challenge, to a, a paraplegic person because they would say they are short staffed. I, I just want to, to, to just get clarity from you when you said they are not aware. I, I just want to, to, just, to just check that. I want, the, there's, uh, Mr. Sagaza, is there somebody who has written in the chat? Uh, no, Chair. Uh, let me okay. just, yeah, not, there's no question. Okay, okay. Those will be the two clarities to you, Mr. Daniels. Thank you. Thank you, Madam Chair. On, on, the, on the first issue, um, I think I'm not aware of any of, um, 
of quarter commenting on the socio-economic um, assessment when the when the National Minimum Wage Act came into effect, or 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 when um, these proposed amendments was first put on the line for um, Quaida. So our only involvement was when we saw the um, Quaida amendment bill, and that is basically when we started when we um, realized that we need to um, need to comment. So. So I don't think this was brought to the attention of the department before. I'm certainly not by, I'm not certainly not by Quasar. Maybe through some other organi organization, but not by, but certainly not by Quasar. And then, um, Madam Chair, in relation to your question, the the problem is that a spinal cord injury is actually, and I'm, and I'm using that as an example, is actually a specialized care area. Um, so that means that even your private hospitals are not fully familiar with um, all of the care requirements that may be necessary for a spinal um, cord injured patient. Um, so there are private facilities that do provide that service and if one were one would need hospitalization that would be that would be the first as be my first port, port of call there are state facilities um like at Winterspeed hospital that provide that service um as well but invariably um they would be quite quite full um and obviously now you're coming as an old patient that coming back for care I think they may have one or two beds um, available, but that's not that's not always um, that's not always the case. It might be full at the time when you need um, emergency medical care, and um, it's it's not just about the frequent turning, um, which some staff obviously at hospitals because they are already saying that they are overworked, particularly now through the COVID epidemic, but there are also issues of um, Catheterization, um, is, yeah, and and that could that could also be a problem. The the old previously the old Conradi Hospital um, used to have all of that centered at one space, so they could deal with whichever medical emergency you were suffering from, because they were a hospital as well. Now, because they've changed to the Western Cape Rehab Center, they're basically just a Rehab center. So if you want, if you need specialist care as a spinal cord injured, you need to go to the hospital. And the hospital is not always geared to deliver um, the type of care that you need because they've got other, um, you know, stresses that that uh, um, they have, and staff aren't always aware that you, you need to be turned every three hours, and um, you need to be. If you are on a catheter, you may need to be catheterized or that your bag needs to be emptied that um, often or that you need to drink a lot of water and they need to come and check and, and make sure that your urine bag is is, um, is empty. So all of those um, nuances or specialization that goes with being a spinal cord injured patient, uh, yeah, the nursing staff aren't, aren't always... Um, um, oh, aware of that. 
and and it's because it's a it's a it's a specialized area. Thank you. Thank you, Chair. Sorry, Chair, your mic wasn't quite on. So no, I'm saying thank you very much, Mr. Daniels. I don't want us to go into the, uh, for now, into the nitty gritties of the, of, 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 of the, the other side of the, of, 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 of the health provision. But uh, if there are no more hands and, and comments and anything written in the chat, well, thank you very much for the, for the presentation. If you want, you are welcome to remain and listen to the other presentations. Uh, but if you want to log out, it's all up to you. No, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Madam Chair. And thank you for this opportunity. Thank you. Okay. All right. Uh, Mr. Sakaza. Thank you, Honorable Chair. Thank you, Honorable Chair, um, Dr. Angelique Kutsier and Dr. Mvuisim Zugwa from the South African Medical Association, SAMA, uh, should be ready to follow now, Chair. Thank you, Chair. Over to you, Dr. Uh, Kutsier and Dr. Mzugwa. Morning, uh, Linda Elba. I just uh, want to share my slides as well. Can I? Yes, Angelique. I see that you're calling me with my first name, which is fine. Uh, it's okay. You can, uh, can we see your face? Hey, Mrs. Dunwa. I will if I, in a moment, if I, yes. Here we are. We'll see your face. Uh, Yeah, you will see my face. Can you see my face? No, not at all. We don't see your face. I don't see your face. I only see somebody's. Yes, there you are. But but it's a bit dark. My light. Can, can you? My light is not good. At so light, which is a problem. Is this better? Now that is much better. That is much, much better. Thank you, Ms. Denwa. <laughs> uh, let me just see which is better. Thank you. So can I proceed? Yes, you may. Thank you so much. Um, I just want to see how I start the video. Oh, not my video. Uh, how do I move my slides? Okay, here we go. Um, from On behalf of SAMA, we would like to say thank you um, for giving us this opportunity to be able to um, give our input in this very, very um let me just see one second. Uh, okay. So, so here we go. So, um, into the very controversial um, amendment to um, 
to do this regulation. I just would like to very briefly give you a bit of background on, um, on who SAMA is and the role of SAMA in the healthcare sector. So SAMA is a professional association for both our public and our private sector medical practitioners. We are registered as a non-profit company. It's a voluntary membership. And our organization is the largest representative body for doctors in South Africa with a membership of more than 12,000 um, registered uh, uh, members. And we've got a, a, a very good relationship with our members where we act as an advocacy voice for our members. We represent the interest of doctors at local, regional and national level. And in this whole process, we ensure that the professional expertise and voice of the medical profession has an effective expression, especially in national debates that shape healthcare in South Africa. It's important that we also play a health policy role. And there we try to unite the doctors for the health of the nation. And again, we are a major player in influencing health policy. So we also support leg legislative and policy measurements aimed at protecting and promoting public health, as well as enhancing access to a comprehensive, affordable and quality health care in South Africa, which is extremely important. It's not only uh, um, on doctors, but also for the public itself, because we believe if you can can uh, uh, have happy doctors and make sure that the environment that doctors are working in, it will go through um, to the normal public that make use of the services of these doctors. Again, to give context to the submission, um, as I have already said, um, we welcome the opportunity to submit our comments on the compensation for occupational injuries and disease amendment bill um, on behalf of our membership of medical doctors. We are also aware that on 17 January that um, domestic workers will be included as beneficiaries into this bill for the first time. So we also agree that, that means to amend section 73 of the act. We, for our, from our side, we are extremely sure that it will have a catastrophic impact on all and doctors, hospitals, you call them, as well as something that we sometimes forget, um, the prescription of medication and medical Sorry, devices Dr. for these Sorry. patients. Sorry, Dr. Kutsu. Yes? There was, there was yeah. a, a break in your... When you were, you were talking initially, if you can start after you have, you have, you have said uh, clause 43 is catastrophic. And then- So um, let me just quickly, quickly repeat that. Thank you so yeah. much. Um, so we are saying that it's got, it will have a catastrophic impact on the injured workers. And so it's on the workers, it will have an impact, but also on the treatment side, on the, uh, on the, um, from the doctors, the surgeons, the hospitals, allies, uh, and other healthcare professionals. But also don't forget um, the 
medication for these um, injured workers, as well as the, um, the, the, the devices that some of these workers are needed or are in need of. So, you know, if we, if we, if we keep the clause as it is, it will definitely have an impact. So whilst we support the objective of providing quality care to people injured on duty, but we cannot support the amendment of Section 73 um, in the form that has been proposed. And why are we on removal of Section 43? It's because this amendment means that medical practitioners, and I'm talking now on behalf of medical practitioners, but please remember, if I talk on medical practitioners, I'm also speaking for all other allies, um, healthcare, and anyone else um, in the medical field providing a service to um, injured patients. So it means that they can no longer use their medical claims as surety for payment in any manner. And that will be and will this then be compelled to attend to the administration of the claims themselves without the assistance of the third party administrators in a highly dysfunctional environment. We are also opposed to this amendment on the grounds that it will place an immense administrative, financial, and legal pressure on the healthcare sector and thereby disadvantage the injured workers and their right to quality medical care. Again, expectations are raised as on injury patients uh, that is uh, injured on duty, they will expect to get private health care, but only to find out that due to administrative issues, they'll have to go back to the public sector. And the previous presentation uh, mentioned the difficulties of after hours, um, and um, uh, even on public holidays, how difficult it is to get these services. Again, I want to, to emphasize that even the prescription of chronic medication or acute medication for these um, patients has become an issue. And we have experienced this before. For me, that's a medical practitioner for more than 33 years. Uh, um, you know, I, I will give you a, a, a bit later on my experience on the whole cycle and how difficult it was just to prescribe a medication for the patient to go and get it from the pharmacist who also then normally refused to give it. So if you look at the current state of the compensation fund, we know that the compensation fund has assets of over 60 billion and more than 26 billion in reserves, but it's extremely difficult to access the fund systems. It's also widely recognized that the fund is dysfunctional. And in October 2019, in an effort to simplify and expedite its claims process, the fund replaced its previous IT system with a new SAP-based IT system called CompEasy at a cost of 285 million. And it's important to understand that this is the fifth IT system that the fund has invested hundreds of millions of rands in over the past 20 years. Um, virtually a new system every four years. And Sama, in 2013, 2014, when, they, when, when um, Koira wanted to release a new IT system, 
we went and sat with them and within an hour we said to them this system is not user friendly it's not going to work and they still proceed with that um so again this new comp easy system is equally dysfunctional it continuing delays in registration and adjudication of claims and payments to medical practitioners and all other healthcare workers again if you look at clause 43 of the COIA book, and we look at the purpose of COIA to provide compensation to employees when you sustain uh, injuries or disease, or even imp more important, or die in the workplace while performing their duties. That's the purpose. And the preamble is um, uh, uh, to provide compensation for disablement. Again, caused by occupational injuries or diseases or contracted by employees in the course of their employment or death and to provide matters connected there, um, there with. So we're all aware of this. And I'm going to read the section 73 of CUEDA um, because it speaks about the medical expenses and not more than two years and, and, and who's going to pay for that. And in the second um, paragraph, it says that um, if in the opinion of the commissioner, Further medical aid in addition to that referred to in subsection one will reduce the disablement from which the employee is suffering. He might pay the cost, he, um, referring this as to the commissioner, he might pay the cost incurred in respect of further aid or direct the employer individually liable or the mutual association concerned as the case may be to pay. This might also be a bit problematic going forward. So, um, I'm not again going to, to read this, but I uh, just want to highlight that any provision of any agreement existing at the commencement of this act or concluded thereafter in terms of which a service provider cedes or purports to cede or relinquishes or purports to relinquish any rights to the medical claim in terms of this act shall be void if this amendment is approved. Again, what will be the impact of this on medical practitioners? It means that those medical practitioners can no longer use their medical claims as surety for payment in any manner. And those doctors will be compelled to attend to the administration of the claims themselves without the assistance of third party administrators. The, the end. Uh, at the end of the day, this will be a disaster and the only victim here will unfortunately be the patient because all that the doctors will do is they will um, refuse to see those patients. Again, um, the process of the administration of the compensation fund, it's riddled with delays, it's proven to be ineffective, which generally leads to medical practitioners only receiving compensation for the services on an average of two years after the claim being submitted, if they um, are happy enough to get it. So for, for me, again, when I started in the 80s, it was easy. There was no problems with the compensation fund. Um, and even in the early, mid, early to mid-90s, when we saw a patient with injury on duty, um, the, the, the paperwork was very easy. Um, we submitted it and we were getting paid for that. Although even during that, those days, there was still a bit of a problem with prescriptions being um, given to patients. So 
Um, then um, late 90s and the beginning of uh, 2000, uh, the, the system started to get dysfunctional. Doctors didn't get the, their um, payments. Um, even after they claimed, there was a lot of uh, problems with the forms that's been filled in um, or not been filled in correctly. Because if the employer doesn't give us the right form with the right numbers, which they sometimes don't have the claim numbers, um, we could not proceed with that. And it became a nightmare. And that's when the third party administrators start to get into the and take this over, this administrative burden over from the um, general practitioners, hospitals, as well as other allies and specialists. So, um, the, you know, again, the, 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 the redirection. So, so if I now need to go back into, to, to start to um, claim um, directly from Quera, I'm going to go back to the late 90s, early 2000s, where I need to submit, I need to sit and have a struggle getting my money. I need to make sure that my IT system would be um, interoperable with your IT system, uh, or not yours, with Koida's IT system. We all know that Koida IT system nearly every four years get a new system. Uh, that is a whole uh, a problem on its own. The, the, the format on how they want us to claim is a difficult process. It means I would need to get an uh, individual uh, appointment of someone just full-time trying to fix my Quedar claims if I am one of those doctors uh, willing to see Quedar patients. Um, and then again, if the forms are not correct, if the information are not correct that I'm receiving when the patient is sitting in front of me, full of expectations that he's going to get, he or she's going to get the service, it's not going to happen. Um, it becomes heartbreaking if I need to say, listen, the system is not working. I cannot see you. I need to refer you because it's not an emergency to the public sector. Where this patient thought that they were escaping the public sector with all its drama that they have. Also, I cannot use my... Um, my, my surety um, to use that as a promise to pay based on, the, uh, on, on my compensation fund claims to the commercial banks because they will not be able to accept the medical practitioner's debitors book, book as a collateral for an overdraft facility to fund cash flow for the working capital, again leading to loss of revenue. And some of those private practices or doctors um, would simply just either close down or refuse, as I've said to not seeing, uh, seeing patients except in um, severe emergency cases. So we look at what we call in medicine a real-world impact. And the real-world impact of this proposed amendment will lead to a wholly unsustainable and untenable situation. And if you look at the objects of the act, it will, um, again, now with the inclusion of the domestic workers, it will be completely negated. And something else that is very important to Stoma is that apart from being generally unwise, detrimental and counterproductive, we also need now to, to look at the amendment um, in terms of would it be unconstitutional? Because it's likely that it would be, might be considered unconstitutional. 
And, um, and why we say that is that the proposed amendment does little to address the actual structural and governance failures of the compensation fund. And this historical weakness and poor performance of such a dysfunctional and poorly managed fund will perpetuate the harm that injured workers face and will continue to be a barrier. So by, by fixing um, the, the cessation part, you're not fixing, you, you haven't done nothing on the actual structure and governance failure. I also want to say that SOMA had, in all these years that I've been in SOMA, we had twice a year meetings with COERA, but around about 2016, we stopped it. And it was due to the high CEO and management turnover. There was no succession in the hand hours, overs, and we felt that we were wasting our time because every time when we, have to, we had to meet, we start all over again explaining the background and nothing um, materialized out of those meetings. So we stopped it. Um, as I said, we were wasting our times. Again, it will be an encumbrance to the medical profession. It will place unreasonable restrictions on medical practitioners. And here it is very important. It is arguably an infringement of Section 22 of the Constitution of the Republic of South Africa, Act 108 of 1996 Constitution, which stipulates, oh, in 22, freedom of trade, occupation, and profession. Every citizen has the right to choose their trade, occupation, or profession freely. And the practice of a trade, occupation, or a profession may be regulated by law. So if you look again at the amendments and we, uh, and we test it, we see that um, under Section 36 of the Constitution, um, I'm not going to read the whole thing, just highlight some, the limitations of right. So the rights in the Bill of Rights may be limited only in terms of the law of general application to the extent, and this is the important part, that the limitation is reasonable and justifiable in an open and democratic society based on human dignity, equality, and freedom. And then you need to take into account all the relevant factors that I have, that some have list, listed here under point one. And then point two says, except as provided in sub section one or in any other provision of the constitution, no law may limit any right entrenched in the Bill of Rights. And if we again look at this, this right will be limited in clause 43 of the amendment bill. Um, and the reason again, it will lead to medical practitioners being unable to practice their profession and earn a living when they will be obliged to tend to the submission and administration of their own claims to the compensation fund where payment from the compensation fund is not guaranteed or received after years of said claims have been submitted and placing their livelihood at risk. Again, 2015-2016, Sama undertook, where after our members were extremely unhappy, we undertook to recover long outstanding monies um, where we worked together with Quota and um, we had extremely limited success and finally gave up. With, with that as well. So the purpose and nature of the limitation 
has not been proved and without the transparency into the reasons for the limitation, it cannot be deemed as being reasonable or justifiable in an open and democratic society. And this is important. Again, it will also negatively affect the patients, will then need to go to the public hospitals as opposed to private hospitals. And we all know that the current state of our private hospitals, they are trying to, to upgrade hospitals, overburdened, resource constraint, often poorly managed and understaffed. And most of these affected employees will then again be relegated to these facilities where um, subpar quality of care is unfortunately not so uncommon. And thereby with this, I'm not saying that the private sector is giving the best treatment, but at least there is a bit a better oversight sometimes in the private sector and accountability. So um, I'm nearly finished with this. So I also would like to say that we align ourselves with all the many points that was raised by the Injured Workers Action Group, IWAC, and others on why Clause 43 of the Quaid Amendment Bill is problematic for vulnerable workers and medical service providers. Again, no reasonable rationale for amending the Act. It requires a reasonable rationale to do so if government wants to do this. Um, also, um, they needed to have um, stakeholder engagement uh, and uh, unfortunately, before you post or do proposals to a bill, have a stakeholders meetings in the private health sector where most of this problems is starting off, and it was it did not happen. So that is uh, quite a huge problem uh, of concern to Soma as well. So. Um, then again, brings me back, I've already raised this, that, um, uh, instead of eliminating what works for medical service providers and um, injured on duty patients, um, that's the, the third party administrative services, it currently work. The department should focus on fixing what does not work and not fix what is working. So in this case, the fund's claims and administrative capabilities and its ability to pay claims efficiently. And again, third-party administrators helps us to alleviate the burden. And um, by taking over this process, the third-party administrators ensure that the medical service providers have actually more time on their hands to, to do what they are trained for, and that is to... To, to give service to the patients and not sitting and fighting the whole time with an administrator for getting being paid or for forms or for IT system that is not um, working uh, properly uh, or unuser, not, not so user friendly. That's extremely, uh, and, and that becomes very frustrating. If you are in a medical practice and you, you, you need to load information onto a system that is very unuser friendly, uh, at some stage, you just give up. And, and by giving up, you will take your losses with that patient and then vow not to carry on seeing patients in future um, due to this. So um, I've, I have mentioned this before that some practices will be unable to raise capital on the strength of the growth outstanding quite depth book. 
Um, and um, something that it is important to, to make you all aware is that all fees payable by these medical service providers to the third parties, whether it's for administration or factoring services rendered, does not increase the cost of medical treatment to the compensation fund by even one cent, as it is paid out of the normal gazetted tariffs and not over and above the gazetted tariffs. So Quera is not um, having any um, increase or any, uh, any uh, place where they are built um, above what was gazetted. So important. So, um, and, and, and all that we as healthcare providers, as doctors, at the end of the day, all that we want to do, I want to see the patient. I want to know that I give the best advice to the patient. And I want to know that, um, that this patient, if I prescribe or if I send this patient to a, 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 another service provider, um, that this patient's road that the patient travel will be fine and easy because it's my world. I understand the medical field, but the patient doesn't understand the medical field. And it's, it's a huge thing for a patient to be referred um, and then um, only to end up not understanding what is happening because no one wants to see me because of an administrative problem. It, it, it's not fair against the patients. And um, I, we have um, spoken with our members and I'm just going to two slides on examples of comments received from SAMA members. We've got proof of all of this and as well the doctors, who the doctors are that said this. So the first doctor um, complaint was section 43 is deeply problematic. Medical service providers treat patients injured on duty immediately, but have to wait up to two years to be paid by the compensation fund. Again, this is because of the systematic failure of both the IT systems and administration of the fund. It is unrealistic to expect a physiotherapist, doctor or small practice to wait this long for payment. They will still simply go out of business. One comment from a doctor. Uh, other doctors will say said that we will not have time to process quite claims. Hence, it if it were to be passed, I would will most likely not perform work for IOD patients. Another doctor, these cases drag on for years with the service provider rendering the medical care pending extensive payments delays. This would negatively impact on the willingness to actually render the service. Another GP is a solo practicing general practitioner who previously tried to do the admin in the house. I will not see the IOD patients anymore if I can't send invoices through X. And X in this case is the third party provider because without access assistance, in paying our claims in time, our practice will stop completely in treating injury on duty patients. It's impossible to run a business and wait for compensation fund to pay because they never pay on time, never pay claims out at all. Another doctor, I do not have the time to do all the admin and see that the patients get well again. I agree with expressions of concern by some and other bodies. I agree that the consequences of this amendment being allowed to pass will have the serious consequences foreseen by some and others. Last comment was, please don't make it any more difficult to get payment for medical practitioners because in the end, there will be no medical services left. So in conclusion, the amendment proposed by clause 43 must be reconsidered and abandoned 
And Salma believes that um, section 23 which of the amendment bill, which seeks to ban the cessation of medical services and invoices to financial institutions and third party administrators, if adopted, will have a disastrous impact on practitioners and injured workers. Again, the system in its current form is completely dysfunctional. And even if this amendment does not pass, the whole system must be overhauled. It is not a sustainable, friendly, and member satisfaction regarding provider or patient environment. Compensation fund is wholly dysfunctional, poorly governed, and mismanaged. Removing the session of invoices would do away with the only part of the function of the fund's value chain that actually works. And again, such an amendment would be unconstitutional and irrational. If enacted, it, will, it would defeat the entire purpose of the quota by encumbering medical practitioners with insurmountable administrative burden, financial uncertainty, and will undoubtedly further disincentivize healthcare prof professionals from engaging with the funds. Thank you. Um, I would also like um, to, uh, I'll, I'll take off my, my slides, and also would like my vice, Dr. Um, Zukwa, to please, if he has any more, um, anything that you would add to this, and then we open up for questions. Thank you. Uh, thank, thank you, you thank you, Dr. Mzukwa. If you have got any, uh, additions, I no, hope you are not going to mind. have another presentation. You will just add. I hope so. <laughs> no, I've got uh, just five pages, uh, Madam Chair. No, I'm joking. <laughs> no, thank you so much for this opportunity given to Sama, uh, 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 Honorable Dunjwa. Uh, we really thank this uh, 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 portfolio committee for, for this opportunity. Just to add on what uh, my colleague have, uh, uh, said there already, we, we also represent um, these, the, our members uh, at an international level. Uh, we are part of, of the World Medical Association. So we just mentioned uh, local, provincial, and national, and we forgot to add that we're part of the World Medical Association. So um, we also have that perspective. I just wanted to add that part. Otherwise, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with the presentation. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, uh, honorable members. Madam Chair, Michael Bagram. That's the presentation from Sama. Honorable Bagram, Honorable Dana, any other hands, if there are none, if there are no other hands, then the last one will be myself, Honorable Bagram. Thank you, Madam Chair. I really appreciate uh, the opportunity and thank you for allowing me to uh, question uh, Salma. Um, I, I must add immediately that I believe that the diagnosis of the amendment legislation given by Sama is spot on. I'm not a doctor, I'm a lawyer, but the diagnosis is very good. And the legal diagnosis, what they've outlined today is, is fantastic. So thank you very much for it. It's been my experience in talking to medical practitioners across the Cape. 
Um, in particular, I spoke to a group of doctors. I think they represent 200 doctors through QualiCare. Um, and they are telling me that already many of their members are refusing to do any work uh, that comes in from the compensation fund because of the administrative nightmare that they're facing on a daily basis. Um, in fact, I spoke to a claimant um, about two weeks ago, and his claim is still not sorted out after 21 years. We had the 21st birthday of his claim. So we've got an administrative nightmare. And to obviously um, hear about, we've heard over the last 10 years now, the various replacements of the IT systems, they've spent about half a billion rand, if not more, on replacing IT systems, and the current one is just as dysfunctional as the last. Uh, I'm not sure why we're wanting this amendment, in particular Clause 43, and I know you've commented on it, uh, but there are other things that need changing, and we had a perfect opportunity uh, through the Department of Employment and Labor to have a change um, and to fix up what is really destroyed, and yet somehow they're trying to replace something else now. When, and maybe you can comment on this, and it is a legal question, but you have touched on all the legalities, and in particular the unconstitutionality of the Clause 43, but when you want to change legislation, you want to kill some evil that exists. I'm not sure what evil exists, and maybe you could even touch on it. Is there any evil that exists in the current structure whereby you can go to third parties, cede your claim, etc. It costs the patient nothing more and it costs the fund nothing more. I'm not sure what they're trying to kill, other than the fact is that some of these... Honorable uh, Baker, Baker yeah. please. Questions of clarity. Some yeah, of... Yeah, well, that's what I'm trying to get clarity yeah, on. It. What's the evil? I'm more uh, leaning to... to okay. The deliberations. Can we just be pointed with questions of clarity? I, I will. I will try that. But what I need to know is what the evil is you think that that might exist and why they're doing it, other than the fact that these institutions do sue the compensation fund and are always successful. Maybe that's the evil that they're trying to cure. They don't want to get claims, successful claims report. Maybe you can comment on that. I know they also reduce. They're removing travel injuries during travel to or from work. Um, and I want to know if you've ever had any research done on whether some of these uh, injured people come because they've been traveling in taxis and hurt on the way to work or from work. That's going to come away from the fund. Um, the, the institute, the const unconstitutional, you've touched on that, but I'd like to hear more about that if you have got any comment on it. I mean, for instance... Um, all you're saying is that you can't get someone else's help. I don't know where that would be constitutional or not. Um, and also you've said that there, were, there was pressure on the public hospitals and clinics, etc. I mean, isn't this going to create a whole lot more pressure altogether um, on this? Uh, the, the reality is that we, by not allowing to seed claims, we are also destroying business. The, the business itself, if you're destroying it, I want to know what you have to say about that. So thank you. I do have many more, but I'll cut it there. Thank you. Honorable, B Honorable Dana. 
Thank you, Chair, um, and thank you to Dr. Kutsi and Dr. Mzukwa for the presentation. Um, I have just three questions. It's interesting that Honorable Bagra mentioned evil because in my notes I said that third-party administrators are repeatedly demonized by the department, so that's quite interesting. But I would like to know um, from the presenters, can you please again just highlight the importance of these administrators with regards to the administrative burden on medical practices and the effect that the poor administration, especially on the fund side, has on the workers on the ground and will undoubtedly be exacerbated if Section 43 is allowed, as is in the, in the bill. And then also my second question, I know you mentioned that you were not consulted or, um, yeah, you were not consulted in the socioeconomic impact assessment that was done in 2015, but uh, could you access it? And was it at all insightful or meaningful um, for you to be able to do the presentations to the committee with regards to these amendments. And my last question, Chair, is, um, Dr. Kutsia, could you please explain how doctors or medical practitioners are indeed within their rights to refuse to see injury on the reasons for such refusals and ultimately the effect that that would have on the workers on the ground? Thank you, Chair. Thank you so much. Um, thank you, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Kotze. I've also got some few questions. Can you please, uh, you then respond uh, uh, to all of them. You, you, you first, and thank you very much for your for your for your presentation. Uh, you 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 said the system has always been changed every after four years. Uh, can you please? Uh, uh, reflect on which are other systems outside Mashuko, which has then been changed to COMIS by the department. If you are, are saying section 43 is to be overhauled, what are you proposing? I, I just want I just want to check that. Uh, can I be clarified by 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 summer, I will make an example. My question is, if Dujua Wu is injured at work, his claim or her claim is 150,000. Does Dujua receive that entire 150,000 that is paid uh, to 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 her or to him by being injured on duty, I, I would like to I would like to get that. Can 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 that be clarified to me? If a patient gets the entire money, that is then a, a paid to him. Can 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 you clarify that that, that for me? And Thank uh, you, Mrs. wait for me, Dr. Kutsu, please, please. If you are saying com is and, and by implication compensation fund is dysfunctional, in in your engagement with 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 with, with compensation fund which you found that it, you are just wasting your, your time. In that period, have you ever requested to be exposed on how the system is working? 
physically. Physically, go to the admin, to the processes of claims. You are then, have you ever been exposed to how then are they, uh, the, the process of, 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 of all their systems at, 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 in, in the compensation fund? Uh, those will be my last, uh, that will be my last uh, uh, question of clarity from you. Then on how you respond, who starts, who doesn't respond, depends on you. I will hand over to you. Thank you so much, uh, Mrs. Dunwa. I'm going to start with you first. Um, uh, the, regarding the systems, the IT systems, so have we been exposed? Yes, I, my personal capacity, 2013, 2014, um, met many times at the head office in Pretoria. And we, when they wanted to implement that, the second last system, we actually sat with them, look at the system, and we told them that the system is, um, is not user-friendly, it is a complicated system. It's not going to add any value to the doctors. And we said this should not be implemented. Unfortunately, and during that time, they already paid for the system and only asked us afterwards when they were very um, excited to introduce a system. So um, on your systems, yes, we, we, we did. And before that, for many years, Salma had a good relationship with Quaida in the in the fact or in the manner where we met um, at stakeholders meetings. The problem, as I have said, is that Quaida themselves had a high turnover or, of acting CEOs, managers, and at some stage you cannot start all over again explaining what you have explained six months before, what was the problem, and why we are sitting here. So you don't move anywhere. And that, that is actually very, very sad. So as I've said in 2016, we decided, um, you know, it's Sorry, not, Doc. We, we, Sorry, Dr. Kutsi. Yeah. Can your video be, because the, uh, these processes are live, the media is saying, okay, all right. Okay, I, I hope my video is on, I can't see myself. Yes. So hopefully it's there. So I want to come back to your second question or your second last question about the, this, um, the, dis, the dysfunctional that systems that we are saying, yes, um, the systems we have set again, as I have said, up until 2016, some of said many times with them. And unfortunately, it's a government organization. And um, listening to a private sector, um, also present, representing the public sector, it, it, um, at some stage it become a tick box exercise. So again, that is a problem. You asked me the question if I have been injured at work and I've been paid 150,000 rand as the injured patient, what happens to my money? I just want to say to you, that's not the, the, the function of the doctors. It's got nothing to do with us. Our um, uh, 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 problem is by us submitting invoices to pay for the services rendered by the healthcare professionals. And unfortunately, we don't have anything to do with whether a patient is getting his compensation that's outside of the domain of SOMA or the average medical doctor. You um, sorry. also... Are, can sorry? I add on that? Yes. Uh, please, please. Through you, 
through you, Madam Chair, can I add uh, to what this question that is uh, Angelique is addressing at the moment? Can you wait until she she answers all the questions? She answers all the questions, and if you want to add, you will then come in. Okay. Please, okay. Thank you. Thank you. You asked a question on the IT systems. Um, if you look at the data that we have presented here to you regarding the, the past few years, I just want to go. So we worked it out in the last 20 years, there was five new systems. So it brings more or less just on an average for, um, for sister, uh, every four year a system. So whether, whether um, some systems work shorter than four years, I can't um, out of my head say to you or give you that. I can just tell you what we know about the stats that we have, where we said that um, these um, systems has been, uh, you know, over the past 20 years, how many times systems has been tried to be um, put in place um, and, and the amount that it costs. Now, the fifth system, the SAP-based system. So if the our stats is wrong, I would love the compensation fund to um, then um, please uh, alert us if, if we are wrong. But if you if you look at the fifth system in 20 years, it, would, it more or less is a, every four years. That's an easy way. As I've said, it can be shorter. So what do we want in section 43? We want to be taken out. The secession um, cannot be um, being given to third parties, as the third, first, the third parties is actually the people who makes this work in the healthcare system. So we do not want the amendment um, of Section 43 as currently um, being proposed. Um, then I just want to come back to the other questions that was asked around the administrative burden. I myself um, stopped to see um, uh, injury on duty patients. What I will do for a patient, because I've got patients that's many years with me, I will fill their forms in for them. I will still do it on paper-based. I will fill it in, but I will not claim anything from um, Queda. Um, I just would like them to have a paper trail that my patient was injured because I do not have the energy to go and fight to get a money's back from Quero. And that is the average feeling of many of the doctors. When will I refuse to see a patient legally? I can if you come in and your leg is hurt, but it's not life-threatening. I do not need to see you. I um, I am obliged ethically to see only life-threatening patients who's not my patients or even if you are my patients um, and not if it's a normal uh, uh, illness or a normal disease. Um, so that's, you know, I hope that answers that question. Then, um, so if there's, uh, <laughs> if we cannot have a proper system where we can do our billing and clinical record keeping as it should be um, in, in, in the cases of um, injury on duty. There should be proper notes, proper guidelines, but you can have guidelines, but if you cannot implement the guidelines, if it's not a guidelines that's been drafted by doctors for doctors, 
it becomes a, an administrative nightmare for us to then try to um, bill through those systems because in the end of the day, the doctors bill and the doctors need to make, uh, to do proper notes. And our service is to make sure that we give the best um, treatment to our patients and not sitting with administrative um, uh, issues, trying then to, um, to sort that out. Um, there is just no energy or time left for that anymore. We've been through this. Um, I was in private practices 1988. I can tell you I've got the, went the, the, the whole circle. And at this stage, again, as many of my colleagues, um, we do not see routinely quite our patients. It's just a huge nightmare. Um, even if you don't see a lot of them, it still stays a nightmare because the paperwork is a nightmare. The, um, most of the times, even the employer, employers themselves doesn't know what is the correct data to be given to us. And you cannot simply sit and try to figure out um, what needs to be done. So it's a problem. I hope this makes sense. If there are any more questions or if I haven't answered all the questions, I'm more than willing to answer them. And then I will give over to Dr. Mazukwa. Uh, thank you so much, uh, uh, Honorable Dunjwa. I just wanted to add on what uh, uh, my chairperson Angelique has said regarding the question that you asked, an example of 150,000 that you talked about. There are two processes, Madam Chair, uh, Honorable Chair, that uh, 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 must go concurrently uh, when a, a patient is injured. Uh, the first part is where you must be attended to because you are injured, injured on duty. You must get uh, medical attention as soon as possible. So in that process, you are taken, depending what time of the day, you are taken to the nearest institution attended to. Um, and uh, that institution, in fact, the employer has to give um, paperwork uh, so that that uh, um, uh, process is, is uh, taken care of by the institution. So the patient must be attended to by a medical practitioner or whoever, uh, where the, the patient was taken to the nearest institution. The second part that I think we are referring to is where now uh, the, the occupational um, uh, uh, medical doctor or um, uh, occupational uh, uh, um, appointed employee, those who are do doctors who are trained uh, to attend to injuries at work, who have done a course on occupational uh, medicine, then that person who's employed or appointed by the employer must then uh, assess the injuries, uh, including the time that was lost by the patient at work, uh, um, because you need to be paid for the days that you are not at work uh, because you were injured, but also um, they need to uh, assess according to the part of the body that was injured. So it depends on the part of the body that was injured, the severity of that injury. There's a formula that is used by COIDA to get to the point where you you the question that you are, you are you have asked uh, honorable Dunjo. so the occupational 
health practitioner is the one that is going to determine the part where the, 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 the employee must be compensated according to the formula that is already in existence from COIDA. And that, that's the process that is, so those are two processes, two separate processes. But the one that we're dealing now is the one where a patient must go to hospitals or doctors and those uh, service providers must be uh, attended to in terms of the payment and stuff like that accordingly. Thank you. Um, I hope it uh, answers your question, Honorable Tunja. Uh, thank you, Dr. Mzugwa, for the for the addition and for the clarity. Uh, can I can I and, and thank you, uh, Dr. Kutsi, for for uh, for responding to the questions that we have asked. We will, uh, if if there are any other clarities, honourable members. We will then pass and go to the next uh, next present uh, uh, next presentation, oral submission, uh, and Mr. Sakaza will then uh, uh, Mr. Sakaza will then uh, uh, inform us who is that uh, company or who is that person. It's up to you, uh, Summer. If you still want to remain and listen, it's okay with you. Uh, but uh, yeah, thank you very much. Thank, thank you, so you very much, much and thank you so much, Madam Chair. Um, I will stay on for a while, but I'll keep myself muted and just listen to what the other people are saying. Thank you so much. Okay, uh, Mr. Sakaza. Thank you very much, Chair. Um, the next presentation, Chair, is coming from the Association for. <laughs> Association for Dietetics, South Africa, that is ADSA. Uh, Ms. Alta Kloppers is here, and Mr. Alpha Rasikala also made a co-host if they want to uh, share their presentation. Thank you very, Thank much. You very much. Over to you. Uh, good morning, honorable chair and committee members. Um, I would like to, on behalf of ATSA, really um, express our sincere um, appreciation for allowing us the opportunity to be able to present our case here today. So I would just like to start sharing my screen. Um, I'm just just give me a minute. Am I allowed to share my screen here? Yes, you are. Yes, you are. Okay, there we go. Okay, so 
would like to just start off with a brief introduction of the, um, our delegation that helped us work on this presentation. So I, my name is Alta Kloppes and I'm the portfolio holder for the Private Practicing Dietitians on the ATSA com um, Executive Committee and I'm also a Private Practicing Dietitian um, for the past um, 27 years. So, and then we have Ms. Maria van der Merwe, um, she's our ATSA President-elect and she will be taking the reins from July. She's also a former Provincial Nutrition Program Manager in Pumalanga Department of Health and she's currently Independent Public Health and Nutrition Consultant, also private, in private practice. Then we have Mr. Alpha Rasekala. Um, he's also a private practicing dietitian. He's a former ATSA Executive Committee member and he has served on the HBCSA board from 2004 till 2015, so that's quite a long period. And he's currently enrolled um, as a PhD candidate at the University of Stellenbosch. Then we have Ms. Annalena de Toy. She's the chief, the chief dietitian at Grote Skier Hospital and she is exceptionally skilled and she has um, extensive um, experience specifically in critical care. She is the SUSPEN president-elect. Um, SUSPEN is the South African Society for Parental and Enteral Nutrition and she's also currently the scientific secretary of this um, society. Um, and Annalena is also in private practice. Then last but not the least, we have um, Ms. Khari Mwabelo, um, private practicing dietitian, um, and she's also a master's candidate um, in public health at Sifako Makhatu Health Science University. So the purpose of today's presentation is to motivate for the listing, the actual listing of dietitians as service providers to members of the Compensation Fund in the Government Gazette. And the presentation aims to highlight the, the essential role of the dietitian as member of the multidisciplinary team treating patients after obtaining injuries on duty. So I would just like to give a brief overview of our presentation. So firstly, I'm going to ask Mr. Rasekala to introduce us to ATSA as well as the profession of dietetics. Then I will be discussing the role of the dietitian in critical care and also beyond, and um, some points on disease-related malnutrition and the role of the critical care dietitian. Then um, Ms. Moabelu is going to present us with a case study, where after I would like to discuss our current dilemma, as we call it, and then we will conclude. So Alpha, that is over to you then. Good morning, honorable member. Good morning, honorable member. Good morning, honorable member. Thank you for the opportunity. I'll take you through the introduction of ATSA and the dietetic profession as a whole. ATSA stands for the Association for Dietitians in South Africa. It is a professional organization for registered dietitians. The primary aim of the association are to serve the interests of the dietitians in South Africa and promote the nutritional well-being of our community, that's the South African community. Next slide, please. 
Our vision at ASTA is to represent and develop the dietetic profession to contribute towards achieving optimal nutrition for all South Africans. And the mission for our association is that all registered professionals in the field of dietetics and nutrition need to support and promote the continuous growth of the profession of dietetics in South Africa. Next slide, please. Then the main question is, what is a dietitian? A dietitian is a nutrition professional who uses appropriate policies and programs and nutritional principles to prevent, to treat, and manage nutrition-related nutrition diseases and promote the nutritional well-being of individuals, community, and the population at large. In dietetics is an integrated and in application of principles derived from the science of food, nutrition, management, communication and biological, physiological and behavioral and social sciences to achieve and maintain optimal human health. So it's a comprehensive profession that is scientific-based. We use evidence-based modules. Next slide, please. In South Africa, a dietitian is qualified and is registered with the Health Professions Council as a prerequisite of the Health Professions Act of 1974. And the minimum qualification of the dietitian is that you need to have an integrated undergraduate scientific dietetic degree. And the, the degree has the following aspects and fields of training. We do nutrition therapy, We do community nutrition, we do food services, and we do clinical nutrition, and we do research. Hence, the four-year integrated degree is equivalent to an honors at exit. Next slide, please. According to the Health Professions Act of 1974, can't you go back also? Thank you. A person who does the following assessment or examination on a patient needs to be registered with cancer. If you diagnose and you treat or you do prevention of any physical or mental defects or illnesses or deficiencies, or you give advice in regards to defect illnesses and deficiencies, or you are prescribing or you are providing any medication in connection with defects or illnesses or deficiencies, you need to be registered with the Health Professions Council, and hence our noble profession is registered with the Health Professions Council. Next slide, please. And when we look at our constitution in South Africa, section 27, 1 and 3, says the following, every person has the right to have access to healthcare services, including reproductive health. And section B of, section 27.1B says, every person has the right to access to sufficient food and water. 
And number three says no person may be refused emergency treatment. Hence, the vision of the Health Profession Council says dietitians and nutritionists must provide quality and equitable healthcare for all. And that is in line with our constitution. Next slide, please. Then I'll take you through the history of dietetics in the world. Dietetics started in the United States of America as hospital dietetics around 1920, and then it evolved. Therefore, most in the world, most countries then started training dietitians and nutritionists around 1940. And around 1970, dietetics and food and community dietetics were introduced and in South Africa in 1980, the HPCSA promulgated the register for dietitians. And in 1981, we had the first board, which was chaired by Procnell from the University of Natal. And under hospital dietetics, dietitians do a lot of training and preparation of special diets and milk formula. Some guidance towards dietary counseling for medical wards and nutrition in clinics is done, especially on non-communicable diseases, which is your diabetes, hypertension, hypercholesterolemia, stroke, and diseases of lifestyle. Next slide, please. So dietetics in South Africa, a summary in perspective. In Africa and South Africa, dietetics is a growing profession. It originated in 1940, but then as I said earlier, in the promulgation from the Health Profession Council was done in 1980 and the first meeting was held in 1981. And ATSA was established in June 1987. So in essence, in South Africa, dietetics is a growing profession and it's predominantly female-based. Thank you, Madam Chair, for your time. I'll hand over to my colleague, Alta Klopper, to take you through the critical care role of the dietitian. Over to you, Ms. Klopper. Is Ms. Klopper still with us? Mr. Sakaza? Mr. Sakaza? There are now. Sorry about that, Madam Chair. Um, can you guys hear me now? Okay, so I would like to start off with um, the just a brief overview of the clinical dietetics where Alpha left us. So as Alpha has said, um, if we look specifically at, um, at clinical dietetics, it really started um, and originated in South Africa from the period 1980 to where we are now. Um, so it's a very new field, a young field. 
And to bring this into the context of the dietitian's role in critical care, we also know that over the past 20 years there has been major involvement in terms of medical um, science. And because of that, over the past 20 years, evidence emerged for the superior outcomes that was achieved with better nutritional care. And that placed an increased demand for dietitians working in critical care and the consequent evolvement of the role of the critical care dietitian. So the dietitian became a very important member of this multidisciplinary team. So the dietitian is considered as an essential component and this multidisciplinary team is led by the intensivist mostly um, and then joined by many other um, members of this team which could be anything from the sister, the nursing staff, the pharmacist, doctors, various specialists um, and even industry um, we, we um, are is part of this multidisciplinary team. And then um, I want to highlight that the dietitian is the principal professional that is best placed to advise on the best way to manage the nutritional needs of this patient to the rest of the team because we work together as a team. And the dietitian is then also um, equipped to advise on the complex, and it's a very complex relationship, between the critical illness and the nutritional status of individual patients. So what are then the benefits of this dietitian becoming a um, component of the multidisciplinary team? So first of all, it's well documented in the literature that the average time to reach your nutritional requirements are significantly improved when a dietitian's recommendations are followed. Um, I'm talking now ICU admission. Um, so the sooner you can get your patient on full feeds, the better the outcomes. Um, and then it was also demonstrated that there is a significantly shorter length of hospital stay when feeds are instructed according to the advice of a dietitian. And the literature shows us that around two days um, shorter length of hospital stay when a dietitian is involved versus when a dietitian is not involved. Um, the dietitian then also, very important, reduces the inappropriate prescription of intravenous feeds, which I will explain just now. But intravenous feeds are a very complicated, sophisticated way to feed patients and obviously comes at a cost. So where dietitians were involved, it has been documented that the use of this intravenous feeds um, has reduced from 45% to 27%, which is significant. So quotes such as these are very common in the um, nutrition literature. I would like to read to you that dietitians are an integral part of the ICU multidisciplinary team. The presence of a dietitian is directly correlated with better provision of nutrition support, patient outcomes and reduction in healthcare costs. So now I would just like to briefly discuss with you the phases of critical illness, just the journey as from the patient was injured and um, through to rehabilitation, because this is very important as the dietitian is, um, plays a major role throughout this whole trajectory. So after the insult, um, so usually when a patient has an insult, an injury, accident, um, there is a period of 24 to 48 hours that 
The patient is unstable and in the process of being resuscitated. Patients often hemodynamically unstable and they can't be fed. So the dietitian comes into play after that first 24 hours, sometimes a little bit longer. And this is when we enter the, what we call the acute phase in yellow, which is more or less the first week of the patient's stay in ICU. So this is when the patient's body, I can almost say, is really fighting this injury and various metabolic processes commences. Patients are metabolically unstable um, and they have huge muscle breakdown. Um, patients can lose up to a kilogram of muscle mass um, per day during that first week in ICU. So then after that first week, that progressed to obviously the second week. So after the second week, and this period at the top you can see can be anything from eight weeks to much longer, um, you know, three months, four months, five months of hospital stay is not uncommon. But this is what we call the post-acute phase. So this is when the body starts to recuperate and the body literally um, two things can happen here. So the first little cloud um, explains that the patient improves and is successfully rehabilitated. So this is the patient where the muscles are starting to regenerate. Um, so the body becomes anabolic, what we call. Um, it, it, it starts to recuperate and during this phase the body needs protein. But then the other group of unlucky patients, they have persistent inflammation with pro prolonged catabolism and hospitalization, which then ultimately leads to death. So that is the post-acute phase. So during the acute phase, there's a lot of, I wouldn't say controversy in the nutrition literature, but we, there are a lot of um, new evidence evolving as to the correct way to actually feed this patient during this acute phase. Um, and it, it involves the timing of um, delivery, the quantities of energy and protein that we are delivering. So you will see when Hardy presents her case study that during this phase um, we are very careful um, as to what we do. Then the second phase is then, or then after that acute phase, there is overwhelming evidence. So while we're very careful during that first week because we can also easily overfeed the patient, during that, um, when the second, the post-acute phase commences, there's overwhelming evidence to push that protein during that period. Um, so we need to really, because then the body becomes ready to accept this protein and to regenerate. And this is unfortunately um, what happens. So if you look at this hospital passage, the patients get lost because now they are out of ICU, um, all the lines are removed, all the drips are out, the nasogastric tubes are out, and patients discharge to the ward and we forget about the patient. So this is where the dietitian still plays an absolute crucial role and Holly will take you through that journey where you really have to now boost because the patient will now probably be eating orally, um, boost the oral nutritional supplements which I will talk to um, you about um, just now. But very important, so after that first week of sophisticated nutrition delivery, we can make everything that we've done and all the money that was spent during that first week undone if we don't look after these patients post-acute. The second um, concept that I just want to briefly discuss um, is this disease-related malnutrition and the role of the critical care dietitian. 
So this is a picture um, that depicts Florence Nightingale back in the 19th century um, where she looked after um, critically ill injured patients um, they, that were part of the Crown War. And she observed that these guys actually starved despite being surrounded by plenty of food. So today we know this condition as disease-related malnutrition. So we know malnutrition as the general underprovision of nutrients, um, undernutrition. But disease-related malnutrition is a type of malnutrition that develops as a result of injury of, or disease. So in this case, there is like increased nutrient requirements. We, we see this so the patients have like an increased basal metabolic rate um, with increased nutrient requirements. Often with the birds, you know, they, um, they have huge requirements. Um, and then there's also increased losses. Again, when you look at a burns patient through the skin surface, um, protein loss um, and various micronutrients that gets lost, and also um, a lower intake. So this places the patient at risk. And um, all of this leads then to the development of disease-related malnutrition, which leads to health impairments with higher healthcare costs. So just in summary then, our disease-related malnutrition will then definitely um, cause poor wound healing, increased infections, complications and poor recovery, which ultimately then leads to increased deaths, mortality, um, treatment, patients go to theatre more often, they need more antibiotics, they need simply more treatment. And then obviously then the increased length of hospital stay that comes with it. And all of this then drives not only cost, but also quality of life. So these are the last two things. So it's not just about the money, it's also about the quality of the life of that patient at the end of the day. And the question remains, um, what are we placing, who are we placing back in society? Do we create victims or survivors? Which you will see in a video that I'm going to try and share with you just now. So then the cost of disease-related malnutrition um, is um, enormous. So in the European Union, um, it's well recorded that it's estimated that malnutrition costs that you, the, the European Union anything from 120 billion euros annually, which is a lot of money. And that coincides with the fact that we know that more than 300, uh, the treatment cost of these patients are more than 300% um, that of a patient that is not malnourished. Um, So then, the prevalence of disease-related malnutrition. So if you walk into any ICU at any given time, the prevalence is anything between 40 and 80% of patients um, have disease-related um, malnutrition. And we know that one in four patients um, has disease-related malnutrition on admission. And we also know that the remainder will most certainly develop disease-related malnutrition while in hospital. So even if you're admitted without um, disease-related malnutrition, if you are not looked after, um, you will develop that disease-related malnutrition within seven days. And then closer to home, um, 
If we look at the malnutrition data on admission, a very recent study by, um, through, um, that was done by Professor Renee Blau from Stellenbosch and co-workers, they have um, shown that um, they've done the, the study at um, various public hospitals in South Africa and also I think uh, two hospitals in Ghana and I'm not quite sure but somewhere in Africa there was one or two more hospitals that were investigated and they actually came to an astonishing 54, 53.7% of patients are at risk of malnutrition on admission. Um, and again, we have a significantly um, longer length of hospital stay and obviously higher mortality was also demonstrated um, in this study by um, Blau and co-workers. But that brings me back to the question, what does the dietitian then do? So the dietitian practices medical nutrition therapy. So the term medical nutrition therapy was introduced very recently actually in 1994 only by the American Dietetic Association to articulate this whole process of nutrition therapy. And this con um, includes what we basically do on a daily basis. So when you listen to Holly when she explains um, what she's done to her patient, she on a daily basis assess the patient, um, she diagnosed the patient. So if I say diagnose, she identifies the nutritional problems that she deals with and that can vary from day to day. Um, she intervenes and monitors um, that established disease or condition. And very important, it can only be provided by a registered dietitian with the approval of the doctor. So the doctor refers the patient for therapy to the dietitian. So then I would just like to explain to you how do we feed these patients in ICU. So firstly we can look at the enteral route. So the enteral route is the big word for just entering the patient's gastrointestinal tract. So that can be done in various ways. So this is literally when we put a tube either into the mouth that goes to the stomach or into the nose or even when patients are on nasogastric feeds for prolonged periods of time, we um, insert peg feeds, which is where the tube goes directly into the stomach, so you then don't have to go through the nose and the mouth, which is very uncomfortable and can cause some infections um, in the long run. So um, we can either go through the tube feeds, or if we, which is then um, these typical formulas that we administer through pumps, or we can give the patient oral nutritional supplements, which is specialized uh, formulas with a very high protein and energy density. So without having to take a lot of nutrient or volume, the patient can actually obtain a lot of nutrients. I always say to a patient, if they have a bottle of shake, um, there's most often 20 grams of protein in there, so that is equal to a portion of steak, which a patient in ICU is not capable of having. And we can easily prescribe up to three of these a day, so it's like three pieces of steak. So, but um, impossible for the patient to actually eat, but um, we need the protein because of reasons that I've explained. Then the next route is then to completely bypass the gastrointestinal tract and go through the veins. So this is what we call intravenous nutrition or um, parenteral nutrition where we, and this is very sophisticated and very invasive and um, technical, but if else fails, we need to feed the patient, we go through 
the intravenous route. So this is just the slide that depicts the various um, sites. So um, the nasogastric tube um, on the right-hand side, my right-hand side, um, that goes into the stomach of the patient, and then the gastrostomy tube that would go directly into the stomach, various other ways of entering the gastrointestinal tract um, and administering this enteral formula. And then on the other side, we have the parenteral nutrition, which is administered into the veins of the patients. Um, if we cannot access the enteral root, very often with our gunshots, abdomen, and so on. So this is what we do. We practice the medical nutrition therapy, and then the question is, what are the indications for the th this therapy? So when would we actually intervene? So first of all, when there is existing malnutrition. So we look at all patients, we screen all patients on admission. The, um, the trauma surgeons that, um, is, that we work with is, um, expect us to look after these um, patients that already has malnutrition on admission. And from the literature, like I said, it can be up to one in four patients. Then, also, the other indication, if, even if there's no malnutrition on admission, if oral um, nutrition is not possible, inadequate or contraindicated. So if you look at the patient in the picture, this is what we are faced with. So this patient is definitely not going to enjoy a nice breakfast every morning, but we need to feed this patient. And this will be then done um, through medical nutrition therapy. Um, also, very often patients, um, like I said, they have intestinal failure, which is can't access the gut because of various types of injuries and um, complications, um, which makes it very sophisticated and complicated. So now I'm going to hand over to Khadi. Um, she is um, right with me. So I'm going to let her take the chair and she will progress with her case study. Thank you very much. I would like to greet the chairperson um, and the whole committee members and just go straight to my presentation. Um, so these are the typical cases that we deal, deal with. Um, on a daily basis regarding the IODs. Um, we see quite a number of bands. Um, it can be electrical bands, it can be um, friction bands, it can be your petrol bombs um, and um, other types of bands. We also see quite a number of um, motor vehicle accidents, your MVAs and often uh, with head injuries. We also see gunshots often involving the abdomen and intestinal failure, which um, makes it very difficult for us to access the gut or to even feed in this kind of cases. We do also see crush injuries um, as well as amputations. Um, so my case is Mr. Z, a 39-year-old male who was admitted on the 24th of November 2020. Mr. Z was brought to the hospital by road. Um, he had a crash injury where he was caught in the machine that he operated while he was busy crushing the concrete. 
So he presented with 35% full sickness um, vascular friction bands and he suffered a traumatic amputation of his left arm. And uh, on the right arm, the right arm was mangled and was amputated um, from the chest. So this patient lost both his arms. The left arm still have um, a little stump and the right arm was completely amputated. This patient also um, suffered uh, a loss of skin uh, from the abdomen and from the chest. So in this case, the patient has lost quite a number of trace elements and micronutrients as well as protein. So the patient was referred um, for a dietetic consult by Dr. Mohabe on the 25th, that is the 25th of um, November 2020, not 2021. Um, so Dr. Mohabe is a trauma and acute critical care surgeon. And the reason for the referral was that the patient was not able to consume the oral diet. So he was not able to eat orally uh, because this patient was intubated and ventilated. So and the other reason also was to prevent the disease-related malnutrition as um, indicated by the previous speaker. So Mr. Zapp's weight was um, 70 kilograms. His height was 178 centimeters and the body mass index was 22 kilograms per meter squared. Uh, this patient was not considered malnourished at that time. So we performed the biochemical and the clinical assessment on the patient, which means that we looked at the blood results and other uh, biochemical and clinical uh, parameters to actually lead us into what to feed this patient and what not to feed. We also calculated the nutritional requirements of the patient. We uh, then um, were able to access the, the, the stomach of the patient through um, uh, the tube was inserted into his stomach through um, his mouth. And we then planned and implemented the artificial nutrition support, which you would see just now. So on the 24th, that was the day of admission, the patient um, was uh, unstable. Um, like uh, the previous presenter, Alter said that often when the patient is um, hemodynamically unstable, we do not um, normally feed in that kind of um, a situation. So this patient was on nil per oral, which means that this patient was not eating anything on the day of admission. So there were no feeds that were indicated and the patient was ventilated. And on the 25th, which was the day one, we then commenced the feeds uh, we also um, gave the trace minerals and vitamins as well as glutamine, which is a protein. Uh, we gave them intravenously. So this was an acute phase as stipulated by the previous presenter that in this case we should be very careful 
um, to not overfeed the patient as a, the patient would be in an acute phase. On day two, we progressed to the target feeds and we managed to deliver the target feeds at 50 mls per hour on day three. From the 28th um, of November until the 1st of December, which was day four to seven, we continued with the target feeds. So the patient was tolerating the feeds very well. We did not have any complications and we continued to give the vitamins and the trace minerals intravenously as well as the glutamine as per dense protocol. So this patient had lost quite um, a great uh, amount of vitamins and minerals through um, open wounds. So on day eight, we increased the requirements. Now this patient was stable and now at a post-acute phase. So we then increased the requirements and we were able to deliver um, 60 mils per hour uh, with the fees that we were giving the patient. So now the patient was able to get 31 kilo um, calories per kilogram as well as two grams of protein per kilogram. On day nine and 10, um, the patient had a tracheostomy inserted, which is a tube that is inserted into the throat of the patient to help them to, to um, get their air into their lungs uh, without using, uh, I mean, bypassing um, the mouth and the nose. So on this day, uh, the patient also was tolerating the feeds very well. Um, we also did the biochemical and clinical parameters. And on day 11 up until day 13, we continued with the tube feeds and the patient was still ventilated. We also started with the oral supplements uh, to establish if the patient would be able to tolerate anything orally or not. And the patient was able to um, tolerate the oral supplements very well and enjoyed um, the flavors that we gave him. On day 14, the patient was successfully extubated, um, which means that uh, the tubes were removed. So then we stopped the, the, um, the tube feeds we then started with the water diet and we continued with the oral supplements that we had started uh, between 11, day 11 and 13. This was also to make sure that the patient as, um, was on a water diet, that the patient is able to meet the nutritional requirements. On day 15, from day 15 to day 35, so this patient was still admitted in the ICU and we continued with the water diet as well as the oral supplements. On day 36, this patient was now then transferred to a high care and we also continued with the water diet and oral supplements. Between day 37 and day 51, um, the patient uh, was uh, tolerating the feeds very well and we continually encourage the patients to take the supplements. 
This is also to make sure that um, the patient does not deteriorate and get into a disease-related malnutrition. So we encourage the patient to take the supplements and also educated the, the patient on the importance of um, taking such supplements as the patient continued with the water diet. Now on the 19th of January this year, which was day 52, the patient was then transferred to rehab. So we continued with the um, daily monitoring of biochemical and clinical parameters. Um, the challenges that the patient presented with um, such as constipation, nausea, and taste fatigue, we were able to manage very well. So Mr. Z was discharged from rehab on the 3rd of March this year, and unfortunately we could not get any further information um, from the rehab due to the Poppy Act. But then the occupational therapist who was um, taking care of the patient and looking after the patient from the rehab uh, just reported to us that the patient um, is doing well. Now coming to the financial implications. So often up to a third of our uh, workload or patient load is um, IODs. And I'm speaking now 40%, um, around 40% of my patient load is um, mainly the IODs, or injury on duty. The, the bill for Mr. A, Mr. Z um, came to 16,308 rands and 24 cents, and that was over the 53 days. Um, for which every day costed 307 rands. So the previous speaker has already indicated that there is evidence that the dietitian involvement shortens the, the length of stay by two days. And that saves an average of ICU cost of 25,000 per day which would be 50,000 if it is two days. So that is how much the involvement of a dietitian would um, actually save. So this patient was fed via the enteral route um, where the tube was inserted into the stomach through the mouth. Um, and the estimated cost for such kind of feeds was approximately 800 rand per day, as opposed to if this patient was on intravenous fees that Alta spoke about, that would have costed around 2,800 rand per day. Thank you very much. Thank you, Khadi. Um, so, Honourable Chair, I would like to just request, I will have to stop share and reshare because I would like to just play a very short video where I would, I need to also allow the sound, which I haven't done at the um, initial, when I started sharing my screen um, at the beginning of the presentation. So if you could just allow me to do that.
Can you see my screen? Can you see my screen? Um, Hardy's journey with our patient. So the current dilemma that we are, I would now like to move on to the dilemma that we are faced with. So in terms of ethical principles and human rights, um, according to the South African Constitution as well as Booklet 3, um, which is the National Patients' Rights Charter of the Health Professionals Council of South Africa, all patients have the right to medical care without discrimination. And then also, um, as, as dietitians, according to the ethical rules of the HPCSA, as well as the Constitution of South Africa, dietitians are bound and committed to rendering services to all patients. So just to give you a bit of background regarding the history of dietitians with the Compensations Fund, um, so prior to um, the Commissioner implementing um, Umeshuku on the 4th of August, I think it was, in 2014, dietitians were actually compensated, even though not gazetted, in terms of Section 73 of Queda. 
um, for the services that was rendered to critically ill um, injured patients that were admitted to ICU. So this software program, as well as various other software programs implemented thereafter, did not actually make provision for the compensation of services for providers that are not listed in the Government Gazette. So therefore, we fell out. We, we were left out in, this, um, in these programs. And um, th this is, so it's since 2014 that we have been experiencing this problem and we were not being able to um, obtain compensation as per Section 73 of the Act. So despite the non-payment, dietitians are currently, for ethical reasons, still rendering these essential services to members of the Compensation Fund without reimbursement. And I have to say, as the PPD portfolio holder and representative, I receive calls on a daily basis. I actually spoke to a dietitian again yesterday um, from Durban that phoned me and she's looking after a patient that obtained 80% burns and she doesn't know where to go to, um, but she's seeing the patient every day. So. After, um, after this problem appeared, um, ATSA was advised by the Department of Labor and Employment to urgent, urgently motivate for the listing of dietitians in the Government Gazette. But since 2015, ATSA attempted to motivate and we have actually been unsuccessful despite the fact that there were various annual attempts. So then I want to just take you to the, to the, to the I almost want to say all the health sectors in South Africa and um, specifically pertaining to the role of the dietitian, specifically pertaining to life-threatening conditions. So um, when it comes to private funders, we know that the private sector's um, benefits are regulated by the Council for Medical Schemes, also known as the CMS. And we know that the CMS published um, the PMB list, which is um, the prescribed minimum benefit list um, for life-threatening conditions, um, where PMB conditions needs to be covered or is, um, should be covered by all funders, private funders to members, irrespective of the patient's insurance plan. Um, so patients have the right to treatment of these conditions as would be the standard of care in tertiary institutions which includes dietary treatment and and um, Anna Lena would um, is a very good example so um, if um, a patient is admitted with intestinal failure in a unit or with burns that patient gets the best dietetic intervention and care um, and then the PMB conditions treatment should be at the same level than what is provided in the tertiary institutions. Um, so what I want to say is that dietetic um, care is included for PMB conditions for all patients that are admitted to private um, hospitals. Then if we look at the public sector, as I've already said, in the public sector, dietetic services are actually included at all levels of care from primary, secondary, um, through to tertiary care. So these patients are also covered. Then, um, when it comes to diet, um, RMA and FEMA, RAD Mutual Assurance and FEMA um, patients, 
um, dietitians are actually reimbursed for these IRD claims according to QEDA um, when these um, claims are administered by the two companies that I've just mentioned. So if we look at the bigger picture, um, if a patient is in the private, um, has been insured by a private funder, they will be covered. The public sector, a patient will be covered. For an injury on duty via RMA and FEMA, the patient will be covered. It is only when it comes to injury on duty claims via the Workman's Compensation Fund that patients are excluded. So this brings me to the next point um, where answers of the opinion that according to the Bill of Rights, Section 27 of the Constitution, and the interpretation thereof as per that booklet number three that I've just, um, the National Patients' Rights Charter, the non-recognition and non-payment of dietetic services is a transgression of the protection of the human rights of members of the Workmen's Compensation Fund. We also feel um, in terms of discrimination that the status quo constitutes discrimination amongst workers in the workforce um, as well as against dietetics and I want to say as, uh, against dietitians because we um, render services without reimbursement and it prevents the professional development and all the financial consequences that we have to face. So in conclusion, um, we know that after, and this is the main objective, to after an injury on duty, to place a fully recovered, rehabilitated and functional individual back into the workplace. Um, and evidence supports now the crucial role of the dietitian as part of this multi-professional team to ensure the appropriate nutritional care of patients after injury. Um, and that it, that it also contributes, uh, the dietetic involvement um, doesn't only contribute to decreased healthcare costs, but also to uncomplicated and successful rehabilitation of patients, which is really at the end of the day the main um, factor. So I thank you for your attention. I thank you very much. I thank you very much. I don't know. I don't know when I speak. When I speak, I don't know whether it's laws or mine. Honorable members. Honorable members. I hope I've picked up that correctly. If I've calculated, it's it's close to four years. And can I humbly ask that clarity why, why you have never uh, uh, pushed and get clarity on this, why you have not been gazetted? And, and, and that's why I'm saying, I'm, I'm humbly requesting 
uh, because one would have thought that, uh, yeah. So that's why the question is, why, why only now? And I hope you will take that. I'm, I'm asking that really humbly in, in, in a positive light so that I really understand and see uh, uh, where the problem is. Thank you. Thank you. Honorable Chair, um, I didn't um, quite follow you initially, um, but I think I did get the question, so I'm going to try and answer, and you can just tell me if I'm, on the, if I'm not answering your question. So, like you said, that we were, um, it's since 2014, so it's basically the whole of 2015 up to date. Um, so, we have actually been um, uh, obtaining meetings with the Department of Labor. We've had various annual meetings and presentations um, and very positive meetings. For instance, I can remember a meeting that we've had um, towards the end of 2019, which was a very positive meeting and um, we, we state our case, but we never received any feedback. Um, so there was absolutely no feedback. Um, and then after the Gazette was published on the 1st of March of 2020, and I know we had COVID and all of that, we um, tried to um, ask, you know, if we could have another chance. And we were told that we will be notified when we can be up for um, submission again, which probably then was from the end of August, September. 2020 but the same kind of process also repeated previous years um, and this is just um, on so we eventually we actually wrote to the DG towards the end of 2021 no 2020 last year November we wrote to the DG um, our president um, compiled a letter and stating our case and we haven't had any response, absolutely nothing. And then I did resend this um, this email with the whole, again, we sent it towards the end of January um, this year. And again, there was no response. And um, that is when we, um, we came to learn. I'm, I'm, I'm told by the media person that I must request you to switch off other gadgets near you because they are the ones that are creating a problem in terms of the sound. You are muted. Can you please unmute yourself? Okay, I think, um, yeah, we will try that. Um, is that better now? They will they will indicate if there's a problem. But you have you have you have uh, you have uh, they say it's much better now. Thank you. So um yeah, so what I wanted to say was that um we um then came to learn about the comments that we could send through when this bill was now up for um the for, you know to the for the amendment of the bill. Um, and that is, yeah, so we are very, very happy for this opportunity. Um, so it's not that we haven't requested before. And we are actually submitting claims. Um, I do submit claims 
through an agent um, um, because uh, but the claims are rejected so um, no no in the absence of in the absence of other questions of clarity I want to thank you very much and uh, we will I think that you have a uh, the department is here at an appropriate time to respond on your on 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 what you are you have just put across. And thank you very much. Thank you very much, ma'am. You have taken us through a subject that is very interesting. And I, on a lighter note, can I just say, you must also encourage males to study nutrition. The every so that it's not a it's not it's not a, a sector that is said is, is female dominated there's nothing wrong with that there's nothing wrong with that but also males you'll see that in these chef competitions they are there are more males coming in so yeah but it's quite an interesting an interesting game I can maybe just say that um, in our hospital, um, we have a, a practice, a, a opposition practice that we work with. We have a very good relationship with them, and they are two males, young upcoming professionals, two males. You must also go to high schools so that uh, young people become, you know, that's, that's the only way that outreach, that's the only way that you will, have, because uh, you will also find that uh, they are, there are males that are interested in, in, in nutrition, you know, which also goes with cooking, nutrition, uh, nutritional science and, and, and all those things. It's really very much interested. It's very much interesting on, and uh, if if I will I will get your contact numbers because I've got a very serious uh, gut challenge which I think I'm not eating the way I'm supposed to eat, and I think it's quite interesting because I always believe in we're told that you must eat according to your blood group, and I want you to tell me if then that is true, and what is it that how do we sustain that without being naughty and, and at, at some other times. That was, that was just outside there. But thank you very much. It was quite an interesting game. We'll, we'll, um, we'll make a follow-up with the department on, I'll say, allegations that you have labeled that they have not been uh, coming forth on your request. But the department is here. But I think it's, it's, it's outside it's outside the present. It's outside the, the the presentation on the amendments because you you it's twofold. You have, you have made a presentation, but you are also a sector that has not been. Can I say in inverted commas, getting joy from the department when you were not included in the in the gazette. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Sakaza. Can you take us through which is the next uh, company or a person to, to, to present? Thank you, Chair. Um, the next uh, group to come through is uh, SAICA, which stands for South African Institute of Chartered Accountants. 
Ms. Juanita Stiankap has been given the rights to can share on the screen. Thank you, Chair. Saika. Thank you. Dear Chair, Honorable Members, Commissioner Mafaka, fellow presenters and other interested parties, Saika appreciates the opportunity to present to you some of our comments on the bill. Uh, we did indicate to the secretary, committee secretary that we don't have so many or excessive comments. Um, just as a background, uh, it was mentioned that we are the Institute of Chartered Accountants. So as Chartered Accountants, we don't often comment on the labor legislation. Uh, you'll see us often in the news on the tax and the Companies Act. But the COIN Amendment Bill is of interest to us because many of our members and associates perform these services. So we were speaking earlier about the services that's provided and our members are playing in that field. Plus some of the changes will also affect our members as employers themselves. So if I'm going to share my presentation. Okay, thank you. Um, so, and in terms of what we want to discuss is the inclusion of domestic workers, the cessation of medical claims that's void. I think that's been discussed quite um, a lot this morning already. And then just the last one talks about the fines and penalties that the amendment bill is suggesting. So in terms of um, the proposal to include domestic workers, we are in support of the changes, but we do have concerns with regards to the implementation of these uh, proposals. In terms of our concerns, we just actually want to uh, say that in terms of Stats SA, they estimated in September last year that South Africa has um, approximately 864,000 domestic workers. Um, our concern relates to the registration process, which is currently a manual process. So if all 864,000 employers now start sending manual submissions, I think the administrative burden on a fund that's already battling to deal with that is, is going to be quite a lot. Um, we do find that once manual documents are submitted, um, we have poor feedback from the fund, unfortunately. So you would submit your documents and email it, but you don't get the reference number. You don't get any other information. Um, you have difficulty in correcting errors. You might have made a, a mistake and then to send that and get that corrected is very difficult. We've spoken about the claims process, um, and we foresee that the claims process for domestic employers who can't maybe afford to even appoint a service provider will have huge administrative difficulties. So that's, that's just something that, that is from our view. Then just in terms of domestic workers, I'm not sure if, if um, anybody's actually looked at the cost implications or the financial implications of um, domestic workers now being registered. Um, I did, a, as, a, as an accountant, of course, I did a calculation and I used the national minimum wage. And I said that if an employee is paid 21 rand 69 per hour and he works eight hours a day for 21 working days, the wage per month is 3,643 rand. Um, making or rounding that up to an annual figure plus a bonus, it's 47,370 rand. In terms of the COID payment, um, as per the tables that were published by the, depart, uh, by the fund, um, the payment of per, employee, uh, per employee by the domestic employer is 492 rand for the year. But 
um, I don't think that people are aware of the fact that the compensation fund has a minimum assessment of 1,284 rand per annum. So even if, um, based on the calculations, you were supposed to pay 493 rand, all domestic employers now have to pay 1,284 as the minimum amount. Um, one of the other, I think, uh, administrative issues that, that can be difficult is that where you as an employer make a mistake, you have 30 days to correct this. Otherwise, the fund will not review your assessment. So I think in terms of administratively, that is also a problem. So in terms of our recommendations, we want to recommend that transitional provisions is um, published. How will the changes be implemented? Um, how can domestic employers be assisted to receive their reference numbers? Um, in terms of other, um, the claim system also, and I think this is one of the worrying issues with, that we've had a lot of issue, or complaints or comments from our members um, already, is that if you now register, and in terms of the constitutional court, um, claims can be submitted for previous years. So if my employee had an accident in the year 2000, do I now have to submit and pay the assessments for the previous 20 years, or do I just pay and submit and register for the current year? So I think that's just something where we would um, really appreciate clarity, even in the bill or regulations or other um, guidance provided. Then I think Section 43, Amendment to Section 73, I think that's the one that's been discussed a lot this morning. I'm not going to go into too much detail. But the whole issue is that it says that any provision of agreement existing at the commencement of this act or concluded thereafter um, shall be void where you were ceding um, We can't hear you, your voice. Sorry, ma'am. Yes. We, we lost you. We lost you. Uh, I don't know whether it's on my side or everybody. Mm -hmm. can, no. I get, can I get an indication? Is it, is it only me that lost her or we all lost her? No, it's all of us. We all lost her. Oh. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay. Can I continue again here with this slide? Yeah. Start from this slide. Thank you. Um, I was just referring back to, uh, and I think this is the, the document that's been, or the section in the, in the bill that's been spoken about the most this morning, the whole session of claims by medical service providers, just setting out the process, which I think we've, we've all gotten to understand this morning, where the doctor seeds um, the claim to the service provider and then the service provider pays the medical or the doctor, and he then in turn claims the, the money from the compensation fund. So in terms of the considerations in this, uh, in this proposal, um, we're saying that the session assists the medical service provider to be paid, and I think that uh, Dr. Angelique this morning spoke about that. The third-party service providers have systems in place to deal with this. There's a shorter turnaround time, um, and medical service providers don't always have the time and the know-how on how to deal with the compensation fund and this whole process of claiming. And then, of course, the impact on the um, injury of duty patients and service providers, that is all things that we think needs to be considered. Um, I think one of the other issues that we had is the amendment that states that the agreement would be void. So it doesn't state that it will be voidable, it states that it's void. So we are concerned that um, valid claims that were ceded previously 
and submitted to the fund will now be void. So the existing pre-funding book would actually be wiped off the balance sheet. So I would have given you the money waiting to claim from the fund, but now it says that it's void. So void means the agreement does not exist anymore. So we are concerned with regards to the negative effect that that might have um, on, on the funders and the security. Sorry, sorry again. Um, um, the, 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 are there any other devices that are next to you that may be interfering with your, with your, the sign is cracking? Okay, let me try that. Just put the phone uh, on. Please, the, there's, there's a serious, really challenge with your, with your audio. Okay. Okay, thank you. Um, right. In terms in terms of our recommendations, we would like um, the department to consider the impact on vulnerable workers. We are still having a problem. What, what may be the problem on your site? I'm sorry, I'm not sure. I don't have anything else with me. Um, I, I will sure. tell you why I, my apologies for keep on interjection, is that we, we are to understand exactly what you are saying and if we are to ask questions of clarity, we must then be able to, we must then be able to, to, to ask you on something that we had properly. So there's mm -hmm. cracking, cracking and there's a, so I really don't, I don't know what may be the problem, but you I may- apologize, sorry, yeah, I don't have anything else with me. So I'm not sure what might be impacting. Just, just hold on a bit, Mr. Sakaza. Mr. Sakaza? Mr. Sakaza? Yes, Chair. Can, can the, the media, uh, the, the, the technical people? I'm told that, uh, okay, the IT is saying, which will have to wait for her a bit. She must log out and log in again. Um, you are advised, and I, I would like everybody not to, to log out, but it's only her that is advised to log out and then log in again. Okay. So we will wait for you, just log out and then log in. And everybody must, must not log out, please. Madam Chair, is it also possible she speaks without a picture? That might also help us. Is, is it what you are suggesting? Let's see when she logs in back and then okay. uh, the IT will, will then advise. Thank you for that, Mr. Honorable Pegram. Thanks. What may be the problem now? Is there a problem now, Mr. Sakaza? No, Chair, we're just waiting for her to just uh, uh, join in. She's joining now. So as soon as oh, okay. she... Okay. Is she in?
Let me see so that I can make her host again. Okay, I'm back. Uh, gee, is okay. that better? It's Let much better. Host again, so that she can share. I'm making her host okay. now, Chair. Right. She's able to share now, Chair. Thank you. Okay. You you may you may then uh, flood your your okay. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So just in terms of our recommendations there, um, I think similar to previous submissions that that section or, or the proposed changes be deleted. Um, it seems unreasonably to, pre to prohibit business practices with no apparent business rationale. And we question whether the regulatory impact assessment actually took all of this into account. So that's just with regards to that section. Then um, this is the last area. We only had three sections that we commented on. Um, it, this is section 51 amendments to section 83. This is the section that deals with where employers have not submitted their returns of earnings. So in terms of the process, you have to register, then you have to submit the returns, and then you can claim at the latest stage. We are concerned with the fact that here um, it talks about where an employer have not submitted um, the return of earnings. The, um, the fund can impose a penalty, but they don't provide any information on what this penalty is or how it's calculated. So just in terms of the financial impact, again, as accountants, we're always concerned with regards to that. So the considerations that we took into account here is that there was no information on the amount of penalties. In terms of previous experience that we and our members have had, um, previously we, there were system issues um, with regards to, to the CF's fund and employers then submitted manual um, submissions on time, but they were charged with, with late submission penalties. Um, we, we and, and jokingly, I would say that the fund, similar to SARS, has now gone with pay now, argue later. But unfortunately, with the fund, we don't find that there's a method to actually argue. There's no method for employers to object to assessments or to, to engage with regards to that. So employers often submit information to the fund, but they don't receive feedback, and then they are hit with penalties at the later stage, saying that they didn't comply, although the information was submitted. So in terms of our recommendations here, we, we would like to submit that the bill needs to set out a method for employers to object to incorrect assessments prior to penalties being levied. So give them the opportunity to, to, to engage. Um, detail regarding the calculation of the penalties to be provided. And we request that the process um, be implemented to object to the assessments, because um, currently there's no such formal process. So there's also no reference number. So you, you battle to, to, to go back to the fund to say, but this is why or what, what we've done. Um, that's the end of my presentation. Uh, I'm not sure if there's any questions, but yeah. Jen? No, thank you very much. Thank you very much. We will uh, we'll allow uh, uh, Questions? Can you remove your? I don't mm -hmm. know what you call it, so that I'm able to. Yes. Thank you. Okay. Any any questions of clarity, honourable members? By the looks, there are none, mm -hmm. even in the chat box. Uh, but thank you very much, ma'am. Thank you, thank Chair. You. I just want to actually just, as in, in conclusion, say that. Um, I know a lot of um, presenters have said that they've had difficulty engaging with the fund. From our side, we've had numerous engagements over the last two months 
with the fund to also sort out issues that we have. So uh, we would actually like to continue our uh, positive engagement. So I would like to thank the fund for that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. That's very encouraging. Thank you very much. Mr. Sakaza, which is the, the next presenter. Chair, uh, in the past 10 minutes, even before this previous speaker uh, locked out, we've been trying to get hold of the last uh, group, which is NALA Business Chamber. They said we must give them 15 minutes, but I'm sure they're just about to, 15 minutes is about to elapse now. So they are still trying to join in, Chair. So maybe, uh, I don't know, Chair, you can give. Uh, can we, I want to propose to the to, to urban members that, uh, we break for early lunch. We we we, we come back at uh, we come back at one. We'll break sure. now until one o'clock. That's why I'm saying early lunch, so that we give uh, the the last presenter time to manage their technical glitches. Is that fine, honourable members? Yeah, thank you very much. I'm quite peckish. Okay, is everybody okay with that? I can see, yeah. Yes, sure. All right. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, let's then break for lunch. We'll come back at one o'clock. If we log out, we'll use the same uh, the same link, Mr. Sakaza. Am I correct? That's correct, Chair. That's correct. Um, if you want to take that long break at one, that's fine, Chair. They will still yeah. use the same link. We'll see. We'll see them. At, why do you say the long break? It's lunch. I'm giving them time. I so lunch. That's fine, Chair. That's fine. Sorry. Thank you. See you at one o'clock.
Good afternoon, Mr. Mikanene. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, sir, I think for now you can uh, minimize your screen so that when Chair comes back, he can first uh, um, welcome everybody back and then we'll give you an opportunity. Then you'll start flighting at that time. No problem. Is sure. this fine? Yeah, that is fine. So that when the chairperson is able now to, you know, introduce, welcome everybody back, and then he will then give over to you officially. No problem. Thank you very much.
Good afternoon, honorable members and our guests. Mr. Sakaza, can I check our members all in? Uh, Chair, we only have two, three members now back, including yourself. I'm still waiting for others to come back. We've got Honorable Jenner, Honorable Ngabane, and Honorable Chair. All right. Uh... There was also an, uh, an apology, Chair, from Honorable Ngobo, which uh, I received uh, during the meeting when I looked at my emails. So Honorable Ngobo is also one of those who I have uh, apology, Chair. Yeah, and Honorable Nontsele uh, would uh, apologize for the afternoon. Can we, so it's, it's a, uh, it members, it's myself, it's, it's, it's Honorable Zuma and Honorable Dana. Uh, no, Honorable Nkabane, Honorable Dana and Honorable Chair. Oh, I okay. I haven't seen Honorable Zuma yet coming back, Chair. And Honorable Bagram? And Honorable Bagram is not yet back. All right, can we just give them a minute? Okay, Chair. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much, uh, uh, members and our guests, and uh, and uh, the, both the the, uh, the staff from the office of the minister and the and the and the department, both the minister and the deputy minister. We will then. Uh, I see, Mister Mkenebe is already has already joined us. First, let's say, okay, let's apologize, uh, but we wanted to give you time if you do have some serious problems in terms of connectivity, and we will then have to take a, a an early lunch to accommodate you. So we killed two, two beds with one stone. We had an early lunch and allow you to take a breather. And be and be settled. I will then hand over to you to make your presentation. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you, ma'am. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Chair. Uh, let me just share my screen. Uh, thank you very much to your office as well.
Eche uh, from your from Poshia and Mr. Zagasa. Uh, we thank the minister as well for giving us this opportunity to do our representation, to do our submission uh, in terms of the uh, Queda Act or Queda Bill in this regard. So we really appreciate that. Uh, what uh, what is it that we do? Uh, we are. Uh, let me just share my screen. Uh, we are an NPO uh, that deals with uh, businesses around uh, Nala, local municipality, which is your area of Porterville, uh, Monyaking, versus Prone, and then Hotzong in Porterville. So uh, we have members that are coming from different aspects of business. We've got uh, people that are coming from the agricultural sector. We've got people that are coming from the uh, construction sector, uh, which of which uh, a lot of things that we'll be discussing will be in line with that together with uh, from your construction side and your agricultural sector as well in, the, in this case. So uh, what we do on a day-to-day -day basis, we uh, I do facilitation where I facilitate about your uh, health and safety uh, acts in all organizations from South Africa to the SADC region where I teach people about the importance of health and safety and then keeping the employees safe at work at all times because uh, we are trying to make sure that the companies do not uh, impose their employees to the uh, to a high listed work incidents that might lead to compensation to be done uh, in this regard as well. So uh, that is my part, uh, uh, Chair. I uh, just want to see if my, if you look there, this is what I've, I think this is what I've covered. We are, I come from Nala Business Chamber, which is a legal uh, NPO business chamber under the South African Chamber of Commerce and Industry. Uh, Saki, we are an affiliate under the South African Chamber of Commerce and Industry. Uh, our businesses, as I've mentioned, we include everyone uh, that is running a business from your small businesses to your bigger businesses, like a construction or consultants, and then your agricultural sector as well in this regard. So uh, my profession, I think I must go there. Uh, uh, I think I must go there. My profession, I'll come back to the other slide. My profession, I'm a mechanical engineer. Uh, I did my uh, hands-on work with Umgen Water because it's a company that sponsored me. So I saw a lot of incidents that were happening in the work environment uh, because the, um, the employer, uh, according to the OSHA, they were not doing what they were supposed to do, which is providing a work environment that is safe for the, uh, for the employers, for the employees. And then an employee in regard, in turn of that, they need to make sure that the work environment is safe for both uh, them and then their counterparts uh, can be consultants, can be engineers that are working or visitors that are working in those in those plants. So I've got 17 years of uh, experience in terms of plant management or maintenance plants. Uh, and then I developed, I started my own consultancy firm. And then I joined another business chamber as a consultant. And then they appointed me to the position of a chief executive officer at Nala Business Chamber. So I do a lot of training uh, where I teach on rotating equipment, stationary equipment. I teach on listed work because that is where you get a lot of uh, injuries that are coming in, especially from your listed work, uh, being it your pressure equipment, your pressure equipment regulation, your high voltage systems, uh, you're looking at your asbestos regulation. So I do a lot of training uh, or, uh, in terms of those uh, assets because 
uh, the impact of an injury that happens uh, from those listed work can lead a person, it can lead to a fatality or it can lead to a person that will be uh, disabled for a lifetime. So those are the things where we advise our clients. In fact, uh, we just finalized our course that we are doing a course with uh, two companies uh, yesterday. Uh, they are in the sawmills industry in, uh, in Mpumalanga. Uh, in White River, they are doing some. Uh, they are doing some meals. Uh, so we are teaching them about your general machinery regulation because that is the important person uh, in your plant. That is the person that must make sure that everything that happens in that plant is adhering to the Occupational Health and Safety Act. He must ensure that uh, his environment uh, does not produce anything that can lead to a detrimental in terms of the health of the of the employees as well in this regard. So that is what, what, what we do on a daily basis in terms of helping the department as well to make sure that people are taught, people are trained in terms of uh, what is happening. So uh, when I saw the extension of the bill closing date, so we said, uh, let us submit because where we are residing at the moment, we've got a lot, I've got a lot as a, as a business chamber, we've got a lot of customers that are coming to us, knocking in our doors to say, this is an incident that happened in uh, five years ago and then nothing has been done about it. What is it that you can do to try to help us in order for us to at least get a closure in terms of this injury or in terms of this fatality that has happened to our loved ones. So that is where we, uh, we come in and assist as well. But uh, we, were, we were then, uh, uh, I think uh, last year, uh, we were unfortunate because in one of our uh, jobs that we do, uh, I don't know what is happening with the slider. Can uh, do that? Okay, so uh, we were unfortunate that last year in one of the particular work that we do uh, as a business chamber is to go and represent our businesses to the contractors that come on site and, and have questions that we pose to the contractors. So we had an unfortunate incident, which I will, I will go to and then explain how it happened in this case. So what, what helped us in this, uh, uh, when you look at your equipment, we also follow the same pattern that the department will, will follow where any equipment that must be designed must follow the equipment life cycle. Where you start from your design, the various disciplines that are doing design must form part of that. Because what you want to do is you want to make sure that the equipment that you are designing, when it's, it gets to the end user, it is safe for their health. It is uh, safe to protect the environment where it will be utilized because you don't want an equipment where when you start to use it now, you start to, you need to deal with issues of the environment, uh, people briefing in and out, they will be briefing this hazardous chemical or this hazardous gas that can lead to a tuberculosis or it can lead to, an, to a, a high radioactive like you've, you've seen in the environmental case at Cattoridge where there's a high radiation in terms of the, the lead that was not controlled properly in this regard. So from the design phase, we need to look at that. Uh, all the disciplines must be there to advise uh, in terms of the quality equipment that must be taken to the end users to exploit or use it in this regard. So that is just your life cycle of the equipment. So where we are with the life cycle of the equipment in this, we are at operations and maintenance where people now are exploiting this equipment, they are using it. You get a lot of people that are amputated of their arms because they were not using proper processes or proper standard operating procedures in order for them to do what to do a, a, a nice 
and then a control manner in terms of operating or shutting down the equipment or operating that equipment as well in this case. So this is what this structure is just, is just showing there. So when an equipment get on site, people must maintain it. That equipment must be kept uh, in an existing state. That equipment must be preserved from failure or decline where it must be kept into its existing state. It must be preserved. You have to do your operations and maintenance and then you have to protect it. You protect it from any damage because the damage that, uh, uh, the damage, if it has a damage that can cause a risk where you can have a quality compromise, your quantities compromise, your health and hygiene of uh, your, your health of your employees is compromised. There can be fatalities, there can be injuries as well in this regard. So what we have done is uh, we have submitted uh, Based on your uh, Department of Labor, we have submitted, I think, three inputs that we did uh, on your review in terms of your uh, the bill. So, and then we followed the same pattern. Uh, we followed the same legislation as your Department of Labor, uh, as the department you have said in terms of the OSH Act, under all the listed work that is there. But a gray a gray area was uh, this one. Our input was in line with the negative impact we have of the illegal forums uh, who will go on site, cause havoc on site, and then demand that they be given the 30%. And then how they do that, uh, this is what happened in your in the road to Phil Jones Crown, where when they were discussing uh, what is it that the contractor or the main contractor must do, and then the illegal contractors came in and then they caused havoc, they assaulted us. So, we, we want to understand what, what, is the, what is the input from the Department of Labor because this has been a trend now that is happening from, I think, 2015 where illegal forums are coming in and then there are injuries that are happening on site. How are they being recorded? Because that seems to be the gray, the gray area which we want at least to have a clarity in line with that. Because uh, for me, as the Chief Executive Officer of Nala Business Chamber, I was injured on site uh, by the illegal, uh, by the illegal uh, forums, uh, the members of the illegal forum. So I was invited on that side to come and then present the case from our member. What is it that were our members were expecting? And then uh, that incident happened. And then the first thing that I was taught in terms of the OSH Act, if there's an incident that happens on site, you need to have an incident report. You need to report that before the end of a shift. That was never done. We kept on reminding the contractor to give us an incident report. He never gave us an incident report. So, uh, and in that case, I know it uh, because uh, they should have also called the police to come and do the investigation. They never did that. So we had to go and open a case at the police. So in this case, so we want to know what is happening with that gray area because it's a gray area. Uh, you'll see in my analysis or with me going to medication, what it has led to. Uh, I was injured and then that led to, to, to another thing that is called, you'll see in my next slide, it is there. So that is another disease that came in because of that incident that happened in this regard. So uh, is a visitor, my question is, is a visitor uh, part of the contractor when he was invited by the contractor to be on his side. So what happened if he's part of the, con of the contractor's area of work or the side office, what is the uh, contractor supposed to do? Is the contractor supposed to give the visitor an incident report 
uh, but the lodgement of the incident must be lodged by the by the chamber. So the chamber did that, but they never got an incident report in this case. So those are the gray areas that we wanted to at least uh, have an elaboration on that. So what we have seen, what we have analyzed from that is uh, these illegal forums are becoming now a headache for the industry. Uh, there's no way where in your OSH Act we talk, we talk about an incident that is caused by an illegal forum. So we need to look at it. It is now a headache for up and coming contractors as well. Uh, these issues of illegal forums. Uh, it is a headache for up and coming consultants because uh, people have been threatened and all of that. So uh, it is a headache for the Department of Labor as well because uh, in a legislation, because it's something that is starting to happen now, it needs to be incorporated as well in terms of the, uh, the department, uh, how you are going to handle it. Uh, what is the process flow that must be followed if there was an incident that was caused by uh, illegal forums that came into on, on site and then they cause havoc. How, how is that going to be handled? It, it is a headache. So it requires some further analysis and incorporation in terms of the, uh, into the legislation. So the disease that I was talking about is this one. So we've got a, a thing that is a reproductive, there's a reproductive uh, effect that are happening because of that. So there's a deficiency in terms of that. So there's a delayed ejaculation disease that has happened that the, medic, the medics which you've attended have determined that that was caused by that injury that was caused during that, uh, that time in that incident. So that is our, our first part. Uh, in terms of the illegal forums that we have incorporated, we have submitted to the commission uh, in terms of the bill. Uh, the second one will be in line with your uh, compensation. Uh, is clearly defined under Section E, but implementation in the area of jurisdiction is flawed. Uh, as family members uh, of which we are running their case are up to date, they have not even been taken care in terms of medical sleep, which is stipulated in the compensation uh, under Section uh, 1E. We have cases and people we work with that bring this, uh, this incident to us. We've got people that are working on the farms. You find that when you do your thorough investigation on those farms, uh, they never, they were negligent. Uh, they will use someone that does not know how to extinguish a fire. They will use him to extinguish a fire. And then the person will, will have uh, the third degree bends and then they will only take them to the hospital. And uh, in terms of the caring after that, they don't do anything. So we've got cases where people were killed uh, in the farm and then their family have never received, they have not received anything. Uh, from from that farmer as well. So those are the gray areas that needs to be tackled as well. So uh, we, we, we are not saying uh, the Department of Labor is not doing what they are supposed to do. They might be doing what they are supposed to do, but they need to at least give people information in terms of how do you lodge cases like this? Because we've got people that are coming, that are working on the farms. Uh, in terms of information, they do not have access to information. Yes, we are out there, we give them information, but not the majority. There's, there are cases, we've got a, a handful of cases that we are dealing with. And then when you deal with one case, the other one comes and then they say, this is how it was done. And then we follow up on it. But we will be interested if maybe the department uh, uh, has a process that they, they will put an awareness to the people in terms of the the quaida, how do you claim the quaida? How do you claim according to quaida? What is it that you need to follow? What is the process that needs to be followed? 
and then uh, the time frame in line with the payout of such uh, for such services as well. So we need to have that guideline because we've got members, we've got people that come to us on a daily basis with incidents that has, that has happened as well in this regard. So we, we just try to, to have them. So what we have uh, realized in the OSH Act, we know that every company that operates a machine that is above a certain kilowatt, whether it's in a farm or it's anywhere, they must have someone that is responsible. The penalties uh, that are given to this uh, GMR 16.1, in bigger organization, you'll call these guys your uh, CEOs. It is very minimal. Uh, in terms of the, uh, the spend in line with the time that they must spend in jail, that is okay. Uh, two years is fine, but we are, we are looking at the, compens uh, at the amount that they have to pay, which is 100,000, which we feel that uh, for anything that they have done, that they didn't look after, it, it injured people and then they get the 100,000 fine. We feel that that fine is not good. Uh, if you look at other countries like your Scotland, they say the fine that a chief executive officer who's a GMR 16.1 will must get, must be a, a certain percentage of the turnover of that organization. So we plea with the uh, department to look at that in terms of the fine. Uh, Two years is okay in terms of imprisonment, but the fine in terms of 100,000, we feel that it is minimal. And then uh, people will can just do as they please because they know that they are going to pay a fine of uh, 100,000. So if you look there, uh, when you look at it from the uh, Scotland case study, when you look at it, uh, 50, uh, when a company makes a turnover of more than 50 million euros, this is how much they must pay in terms of the, uh, the incident that has caused a fatality in their, in their plant or an incident that has caused uh, a permanent uh, disability in an employee. So these are the things that we need to look at, uh, maybe try to drive this because we, we believe that with this kind of, of, of sentencing, people will tend to reduce the number of incidents that are happening in their plants. They will take care of the equipments because once you take care of the equipment, you are maintaining the equipment properly, you are making sure that it does not injure. Those equipments do not injure anyone that is working with them. So we will really appreciate that. So you can see with uh, uh, an, a turnover of between 10 million uh, euros to 50 million euros as well, they are a scale in terms of that. Uh, and then it looks at the, the uh, culpability is a person, if you look at culpability, you need to look at, is a person going to be able to go back to work or they are terminally ill or what is going to happen? So you charge it based on that. So those are the things that we, we, we need to start seeing uh, in terms of sentencing that is harsh to the people that are disregarding the law, that is guiding them in terms of the, both your COIDA and your OSH Act as well in this case. So we, we need to look at it. So factors increasing your seriousness, it, it, Statutory, your, your, our, our statutory equipment or aggravating factors. So you need to look at, is, the, is this employer a repetitive offense, uh, an offense, a, a repetitive offense or an offender that is repetitive in the process? So those are the things that we need to look at. And then we lower their, uh, their DFR rating as well in this case. And then we put the inspectors must go there and monitor whether they, are, uh, they have done anything 
in, in terms of their, their plan, how they are doing their operations, how they do their maintenance as well in this regard. So I think with that being said, uh, our penalties need uh, not only look at bigger companies, we must also look at smaller companies if they have transgressed in terms of the regulation. Because what is important is everyone needs to adhere to the regulation. Uh, you cannot say I'm, I'm small, I'm not going to be, you, you will be charged based on your, uh, the income that we have done in the past three years, and then they will do it. The department must do a determination based on that as well in this case. So I think from our side, that was uh, all that we, we prepared uh, with the three uh, inputs that we have done in line with your illegal forums, which is a bigger headache, and then our compensation, and then the last one being that one of the sentencing that we feel that it is very minimal uh, to the South African extent as well in this case. So that will be all from our side. I don't know if there's a chair, chair there's any question uh, from there. All right, I will, I will check uh, with members. Can you please remove your, so that I'm able to, thank you very much. Uh, honorable members, there is the presentation from Nala Business Chamber, CEO, Mr. Mkanebe. Any questions? Okay, if, if then there are, question, there are no questions and indication, it then means uh, we will uh, we thank you very much. And uh, yeah, it will, your, your presentations uh, will assist us in the deliberation of, of, of at the time that we, we are to, to do that. Okay. Uh, thank you very much, honorable members. I think that was the last uh, presentation for the day. Until we meet again, uh, Mr. Sakaza, am I yes, correct sir. to say that yes, is, that was the last presentation? That's correct, sir. Uh, Chair. That's the last one for today. Last for today. Then we will we will meet again tomorrow. Same time. Thank you very much, honorable members. Enjoy your afternoon. Bye. Bye. To, uh, to elaborate on the implementation of the legislation. So uh, that is linked then to the next uh, 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 target there that will eventually then have a, a set of regulations, at least during this co the course of this financial year, which looks at these challenges uh, that we are concerned about, uh, about, uh, about, about the sector. So if you go to the next slide, and it's still a part of this uh, program two on research policy uh, and legislation, um, 